And the title of today's sermon is Just Do It. All right. All right. All right. So, James 1, 19 through 2, 13. My dear brothers and sisters, understand this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For human anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. Therefore, ridding yourselves of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, humbly receive the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Because if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like someone looking at his own face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of person he was. But the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer who works, this person will be blessed in what he does. If anyone thinks he is religious without controlling his tongue, his religion is useless, and he deceives himself. Amen. Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. My brothers and sisters, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. For if someone comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and a poor person dressed in filthy clothes also comes in, if you look with favor on the one wearing the fine clothes and say, hey, sit here in a good place, and yet you say to the poor person, stand over there, or sit on the floor by my footstool, haven't you made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him that you have dishonored the poor? Don't the rich oppress you and drag you into court? Don't they blaspheme the good name that was invoked over you? Indeed, if you fulfill the royal law prescribed in the scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. If, however, you show favoritism, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the entire law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking it all. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not commit murder. So if you do not commit adultery, but you murder, you are a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has not shown mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would be with us, that you would change us according to your word this morning. Uh, we don't want just to be informed. We want to be transformed. We want to love differently. We want to think differently. We want to feel differently. We want to be we want to be a new type of human that has been touched by the Holy Spirit and is transformed that we might be your representatives in this world. Help us as we walk together through this passage. In your name, amen. Just do it became a very popular phrase. It's arguably the most uh, well-known advertisement phrase in the history of the United States. Because if I say, what company said just do it, you would say, Nike. Okay, Nike. What's funny though is I looked up just do it yesterday because I wanted to just kind of maybe get a story about that. But when I looked up just do it, nothing about Nike came up. 
what came up was this motivational speech by this actor named Shia LaBeouf. <laughs> You've seen it. Okay, Shia LaBeouf was this actor who was in Transformers, and I looked up Just Do It yesterday, and nothing about Nike came up, but, but Shia LaBeouf came up, and he gives this like one-minute motivational speech. And I watched it, and I was like, man, this guy's weird. <laughs> this guy's this guy's weird. If you know him anyway, whenever he pops up in the media, it's always something kind of bizarre. Do you want to see the Do you want to see the movie real yeah. quick? Yeah. All right, let's you let's play it real quick. I just have a little clip on it. Do it. Just do it. No, what are you waiting for? Do it. Watch the whole thing. He's, he's trying to get you to act. He's putting it in black and white terms where it's like you're either doing it or you're not. And, and while though James doesn't have quite the intensity that Shia does, James does want us to think are we doing it or are we not doing it? Are we doing it or are we not doing it? But James starts off somewhere different than Shia does. Shia starts off, you have that power in you, just go and do it. But where James starts off is, you don't have anything in you. But you can do it based on what God has done in you with the gospel. James tells us that God has implanted his word in us. He has put the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ in us. It's that bad news that we are sinners, and that we deserve God's righteous judgment over us. And that we deserve to spend eternity separated from him, because our sin separates us and stains us. But God loves us, even though we don't deserve relationship with him. And he sent his son Jesus into the world, the, the second person of the Trinity, to, to come and pay the price for our sins, to restore us to God. He was put on the cross, and he paid the penalty there, and he was put in the tomb, and, and three days later, he rose from the grave. And if you've invited him into your life, then you have new life. Amen. It's like the gospel message is this seed that's come into you, and it's growing new life in you. And James doesn't start off saying, do it. He starts off saying, God has done something in you. God has done something in you. He says that you're becoming a new person because of that gospel in you, because Jesus Christ lives in you. And that gospel message, focused on the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, is able to save you save you from judgment in the future, but also to bring God's new life into your life right now in the present, to make you a new person, to change your life and to get in there and change what you love and how you think. James starts off, here's what God has done. And then he says, just do it. Do what, James? Well, first of all, he tells us because God has implanted the gospel message in you, cultivate that. You're like a gardener in your own life. And, and you're to take out what's bad and, and make the soil fertile for the gospel message to continue to grow in your life. 
Just like Shia, James says, what are you waiting for? Just do it. In verse 19, he says, be quick to listen and be slow to speak. Don't be quick-tempered. Now, that's good advice for people to people. But James also has this salvation perspective where if you're quick to if you're quick to speak rather than being quick to listen, if you're quick-tempered, it is like weeds growing in your life. And if you've read the story and the parable of the sower, you know that weeds tend to choke out what God is doing. And James is telling us, get into your life there with a rake to begin to take out the things that don't go with what God is doing. In verse 21, he says, rid yourself of all moral filth that is so prevalent. Rid yourself of all moral filth that is so prevalent. Not only quick-tempered or, or being uh, quick to speak and not quick to listen, but anything that doesn't match up with who God is or what he's doing, get in there with a rake and take it out. When I was in high school, in 11th grade, I was in an environmental science class. And me and my buddies were given the assignment by our teacher. It was a pretend assignment. We had to like theorize how to fix an environmental issue. And the issue was the issue of kudzu. Does anyone know what kudzu is? Yeah, if you, if you live in the South, or you've been in the South, you know what kudzu is. You put the picture up of the kudzu. There you go. Kudzu is this Asian plant that was brought to the United States. And when it got to the southern United States, it just, like, took over. And when I say took over, I'm talking, like, growing inches and inches every day. And our assignment was to figure out how to suppress the growth of kudzu. And we called everybody. And we called all these scientists from around the South. We looked at universities. We tried everybody. And, and at this time, there was really no way to suppress kudzu. The only thing we found was that this one guy had a herd of goats. I'm assuming that's what you call a group of goats, a herd. But he had this herd of goats, and he would take them from kudzu patch to kudzu patch, and they would eat the kudzu there. And then they would go to the next patch and eat it. But by the time they went back to the first patch, it had grown back. And what they began to realize is the only way to really deal with this stuff is to be constant in ripping it out. To let those goats eat the kudzu over and over and over again. Or else, like you see in the picture, it will take over. Those are trees under there. And the kudzu has become so prevalent that they had to constantly get at it with the goats. And it's the same way with the sin in our life and the things that don't match up with God's character. If we're not proactive, if we're not constantly constantly getting at it, it will grow back. And to cultivate what God is doing in your life, you have to constantly get in there and rake out the stuff that God does not want to be in there. Rid yourself of the moral filth that is so prevalent and humbly receive the word. Humbly receive the word. It's, it's like your soil again. And God is planting something in you. Now, some of you have already received the gospel. That's who you are. You're a Christian. You're a follower of Jesus. Your sins have been forgiven. So why does James say to humbly receive it, if you've already received it? Well, what James is telling us is to receive it afresh, to grow in its impact on our life, not to just take it once as an entrance in the door, but to go back to the gospel over and over and over again. Let it define who we are. Let it define who God is. Let it define our sin. Let it define God's love for us. And to do that with a spirit of humility. R.C. Trenton says, Humility is a spirit that accepts God's dealings with us as good without disputing. 
accepts God's dealings with us as good without disputing. We, we continually humble ourselves before God and let him grow the gospel in our life. And our job is to just do it, to cultivate, to cultivate what God is doing by taking out what doesn't need to be there and remaining humble soil that God can grow his word in. But then James says, just do it. Again, he says, act. Act on the word. Be a doer of the word. Not only a hearer, but be a doer. I mean, it's crazy how black and white he puts this. He says, if you hear the word, but you don't do what it says, you have deceived yourself. I mean, that's pretty black and white. That's Shia LaBeouf, black and white right there. If you hear the word, but don't do the word, you have deceived yourself. You're like a person who goes to a mirror, and, and you look in the mirror, and then as soon as you step away, away from the mirror, you go, am I tall or short? I can't remember. Am I blonde or do I have black hair? Are my eyes big or small? I can't remember. James is saying that when we hear the word and we step away from it, but we don't implement it, it is like we are that forgetful. We are that forgetful. Francis Chan gives a great illustration, and he says that uh, you know when he tells his daughter to go and clean her room, he expects that she actually is going to do it. But too often in the Christian community, what we do is we say, well, God has given us command, so let's memorize it. And that way we can say it back and forth to each other. Uh, let's look up other verses that have to do with that command. Let's study the Greek of that command, or let's read entire books about that command. And Francis Chan's point was, my daughter doesn't come back in and go, Dad, I, I memorized that you told me to clean my room. I memorized and uh, I read a book about cleaning your room. I studied the way that you put the order of the words about cleaning the room. No, Francis Chan saying what he expects is that his daughter would implement. She would act on it. She would do it. She would do it. I find that there's something in us that doesn't want to pull the trigger, that doesn't want to act, that doesn't want to do. Sometimes we're just lazy. Sometimes there is a lot of commands and we just go, I'll get to that one later. But sometimes we see God's commands as busy work that limits freedom. It's almost as if we see God as something like he's got nothing better to do. And so he just tells us to move the dirt from one pile to another pile. And then when we're done, he says, move it back. And, and, and that doesn't do anything. In fact, that limits our freedom. We see God's commands as busy work that just take away our freedom. But look what James writes in verse 25. He talks about God's commands, and he says, it's the perfect law of freedom. The perfect law of freedom. When James writes that the law is perfect, what he means is that it perfectly reflects God's character. In other words, God's not giving you commands because he's bored. He's giving you commands because it reflects who he is. When I tell my kids to say thank you, it's not just because I want them to be polite. It's because I want them to be thankful people. When you share something with them, I want them to truly and genuinely be thankful. And every one of God's command, it's not busy work. It reflects who he is and what he values. It's perfect. But it also leads to freedom. 
every one of God's commands is designed for human flourishing. Now, in our culture, that doesn't mean that doesn't really make sense because anything that someone tells me to do limits my freedom. But you have to understand that God gives commands around how life is supposed to work. And so when he tells you to do something, it is ultimately for your freedom and your flourishing. If you think about the command, thou shalt not commit adultery. Now in our culture, come on man, sexual freedom. Anything you want to goes. But God talks about sexual faithfulness and sexual purity. Not because he's trying to be a killjoy, but because he is faithful to his people. He's utterly committed to us. And he's pure. There's nothing in him that doesn't need to be there. Every one of his characteristics is true and righteous and virtuous and pure. And so when he gives commands around sexuality, it has to do with his character. And it has to do with human flourishing. Probably one of the controversial topics or controversial areas where we can look at this is just the death of Hugh Hefner this week. Hugh Hefner, who started the Playboy magazine and brought porn from out of the gutter into the mainstream, and in many ways is being celebrated by our culture as someone who brought sexual freedom, gave men what they wanted, set women free. You know, I've been reading some stories this week about what life was like in the Playboy Mansion. It was dark. It was cutthroat. It was dirty. It was competitive. It was awful. And yet we hold that up as something that, you know, he gave us freedom, and yet the women and people who were part of what he was doing were trapped. They were trapped. And pornography, how, how many marriages has that ruined? How many minds has that messed up? How, how many women have felt awful about themselves because they don't compare to someone who's been airbrushed? You know, our culture says, no, 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 that's freedom. God's commands around sexuality are not because he's bored. They're not because he's, he wants to give you busy work. It's because he wants to see you flourish. He wants to see you flourish. When God commanded the Sabbath, perfectly reflected him, because after six days of creation, he rested on the seventh. But not only that, you know how cutthroat life is. And to say that God actually says, you need rest, chill for a day. And yet we go, oh, God's trying to limit my freedom. No, God is trying to see you flourish, because every human being needs rest. All God's commands are perfect laws of freedom. And there's freedom and blessing, James says, in doing it. James wants you to want to do it. He wants you to see the benefit of it. He wants you to see how it reflects God's character and, and, and how it actually leads to human flourishing. And so he says that freedom and blessing comes in acting on the word. And Jesus himself said in Luke 11, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. It's this doing that actually leads to blessing, not because we're earning something from God, but because we're just stepping on the steps that he's put in front of us. We're going in the way he says to go. But James does push us a little harder. He says it's in this acting, it's in this doing, it's in this moving forward that we can reveal the depth of our own spirituality. 
See, we're often get our categories confused when it comes to how spiritual we are. We think that if we study God's word over and over and over, or, or if we speak in tongues, or if we totally abandon ourselves and worship, and somehow that shows our spirituality. But what James about to say, is about to say is it's not just studying God's word, it's acting on God's word. It's not speaking in tongues, it's controlling your tongues. It's not total abandonment in worship, it's total abandonment in caring for the poor and the vulnerable. In verses 26 and 27, James says, If anyone thinks he is religious without controlling his tongue, his religion is useless and he deceives himself. We're going to talk about the tongue in a few weeks. But then he says this, Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. James is saying if the gospel is doing a work in you, here's the direction you should go. This is how you reflect the character of God as a forgiven sinner. In verse 27, it's interesting because James says that this inward purity, this devotion to God and keeping oneself unstained from the world is incredibly important. And what's also important is this outward social concern for vulnerable people in our society because God cares about them. What I find right now, and I read this article about this, is there's kind of two strands of Christianity. Um, there's this inward purity one, and there's this outward social concern. And we tend to separate those and say it's one or the other. And yet here, God's saying both matter to him. It's not just doing one, it's acting on both. I read this article where it said, the, the kneeling of Tim, Tim Tebow needs the kneeling of Colin Kaepernick. Now, whatever you think about the appropriateness of Colin kneeling where he is, his concern is about a social issue. It's about, it's about vulnerable people. Colin is tattooed up with Bible verses, and he kneels to show his concern. And Tim Tebow kneels because he wants to show his devotion to God. And this article's point was, these ideas really need each other because God cares not only about keeping yourself unstained from the world, but he cares about the vulnerable people, widows and orphans. And we can't separate God's concern into one or the other when he cares about both. He cares about both. Well, you say, but I, I feel that this one's just, no. What does it say right here? God cares about both. One pastor uh, named Mark Robinson put it this way, God cares about both bedroom sins and boardroom sins. He cares about purity and keeping ourselves unstained from the world, but also issues of justice in our society. He cares about both. And our tendency is to really focus on one or the other, and that's unfortunate because we're missing something about God. See, some of us care about those social issues, and, and we think the inward purity stuff doesn't quite matter enough because, you know what, it's a little old-fashioned anyway. And, I mean, the world's kind of progressive, and we just need to focus on out there and what we can do that's representatives of Jesus in the world. Amen? Just being representatives of Jesus in the world. But God cares about inward purity. God cares about saying no to the values of the world, even when the world says you're old-fashioned. But also that 
God does care about out there. I mean, the problem he had, that Jesus had with the Pharisees, wasn't just that they were hypocrites. The problem was that they focused on this inward piety in a way that neglected outward issues. Jesus' critique of them is that they neglected justice and mercy and faithfulness. They devoured widows. Jesus cares about both. God cares about both. In Psalm 68, it says that God is a father of the fatherless and a champion of widows. In Isaiah 1, this famous passage, it talks about the forgiveness of our sins. Though you are like scarlet, you will be washed white as snow. But what are the sins? What are the sins that are being forgiven? It says stop doing evil. Learn to do what is good. Pursue justice. Correct the oppressor. Defend the rights of the fatherless Leave the widow's cause. Though your sins are like scarlet, they will be white as snow. God cares about justice. God cares about mercy out there as much as he cares about inward purity here. And we're to just do it. I mean, can you imagine if Christians started taking that seriously? Uh, how we would be in the world but not like the world? But then how would we go back into the world for, to care for the vulnerable? If you can put up the foster care slide. I saw this statistic from four kids. In July 2017, there was 1,374 kids in foster care in Broward and Palm Beach. And there's 1,616 Bible-believing churches in the same two counties. What if, what if every church said one child? Foster care problem over. Over. God cares about these things. He cares about these issues. And as we understand his concern, just do it. Just do it. Now, that doesn't mean everyone in this church has to take in a foster care. It doesn't mean everyone in this church has to go spend every day with widows. But what if our church started a ministry where we just went and spent time with widows and their affliction? No agenda. Just to be their friends. we got a list of people in the community. Women who had no one else. Just like the widow that we studied in the person of Jesus study. We just went and spent time with her. That would be amazing. That would be amazing. As a response to God's gospel, we acted. We just moved. James was pushing us there, saying, what are you waiting for? Just do it. Go. But then he critiques the people that he's writing to about not doing. They've let an attitude of the world slip into their hearts, and they've forgotten about God's concern for social situations. You see, the people that James is writing to, we believe that they were more, mostly on the poor side of the economic spectrum. And people who were wealthy took advantage of them. They, uh, they took them to court to try and get money from them. They persecuted them because of their religious beliefs in Jesus Christ. And because of that, when a wealthy person would come into the church, maybe they were a little afraid, and maybe we just need to give preference to this wealthy person because we don't know what he's going to do to us. So they would give the wealthy people the seats of honor. And when someone who didn't have any money and someone who was poor would come in, they'd say, you sit over there. You sit over there. It wasn't just that they preferred the rich. There was real implications for them if they didn't give preferential treatment. And yet, what James says is this is incompatible. 
it's incompatible with faith in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. We believe that James is the half-brother of Jesus. Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, but Mary and Joseph continued to have children, and we believe that James was one of his children. So he could have said, uh, listen to what my brother Jesus said, but he doesn't say that. He says, the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. And in using those terms, glorious Lord Jesus Christ, he's reminding us that only Jesus gets preference. Only Jesus gets preference. He is the anointed one who has come to save people from every economic class, from all tribes and nations and people and languages. He is the divine king who sits at the right hand of God in power. And he's the only one who deserves preference. And in his kingdom, everyone is a sinner who has been redeemed. And when you begin to treat people apart from that, based on something that the world says they should be treated on, you're incompatible with faith in Jesus Christ. See, the problem with treating people in the church differently based on something else is that then you're saying, no, I'm the judge. When Jesus has said, forgiven sinner, their status is a child of God, you're saying, well, they're not quite in my clique. James accuses this church of preferential treatment, of being in the place of Jesus Christ. And it's a good thing for us to ask ourselves, do we treat people differently when they don't look like us? Do we treat people differently when they don't talk like us? When they don't smell like us? Do we treat them differently when they have a different political bit than we do? Or a different cultural background than we do? James is saying that the root of the church is Christ's love for it. And therefore, we should love one another without preferential treatment. We should bestow each other dignity because Christ loves each and every person, no matter how rich they are, no matter how poor they are, no matter where they come from. Look, that's not easy. Sometimes it's not even fair. But we have to remember that what would be fair is if we paid the wages for our sin. But Jesus paid that for us because he loves us. And therefore, the root value of the church is not status or cliques. It's sacrificial love. It's sacrificial love. But then James goes further in verse 5 through 7. And he says, listen, my dear brothers and sisters, didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? See, the world works like this. If you can give me something, I will stick with you. If you can't get me something, I will take something from you and push you down. But God's kingdom is so backwards compared to the world. God gives the poor a special place of inclusion and honor in his church. It's not that if you're poor, you're not a sinner and you don't need Jesus. It's no, that the poor are specifically invited to be part of the church of Jesus by repenting and believing. And the rest of the body is to say, this is for you. You're to be included. You're part of this. There is no status. You're my brother and sister, and I love you, and I will protect you, and I will not exclude you like the world excludes you. The poor are the treasure of the church. Robert Wilkin tells a story about a 
a deacon in the Church of Rome in the third century. And this deacon's name was Lawrence, and he was in charge of all the church's property and mercy funds. And the church kind of fell out of favor with the city of Rome at this time. And one of the prefects of the city of Rome came to Lawrence and said, we want your stuff. Give us your stuff. We want your treasures, and you will give them to us. And Lawrence said, the church is rich, and I will give you our treasures, but you have to give me three days, three days to gather them together. And the prefect began dreaming and thinking, what will I do with all this wealth that I'm going to force the church to give me? And Lawrence went out and gathered the church's treasures. But it wasn't the ornaments, it wasn't, it wasn't the chairs or the decorations. He went out into the alleys and the gutters, and he gathered the poor. He gathered a man who had no eyeballs. He gathered a man who had one leg. He had people who had infirmities and sicknesses. And he lined them up at the entrance of the church and got their names. And he brought the, brought the prefect to the church and said, here are the church's treasures. Here are the ones that are precious to Christ. I would have loved to see the look on that prefect's face. But God has chosen the poor to be part of the kingdom when they repent and believe. And our job is to treat them as heirs of the kingdom, as those who are rich in faith. And when we show favoritism, we're working against God's value system. We're not doing, we're not acting according to his character. We're playing favorites. And favorites, James says, is just one example of many of how we fail to love our neighbor. We fail to love our neighbor. We fail to love our spouse. We fail to love each other. We fail to love. We, we haven't done love. Just do love, but we don't. We fall drastically short. Favoritism is just one example of that. James says, look, if you do love your neighbor, you're doing well. You're fulfilling the law. Just do it. Do the law. Fulfill it. The, the, the fulfillment of the law is love. So just love. But then James says, look, your favoritism shows that you're not doing it. You're falling short. And in fact, if you fail at just one command, if you fail to love in one place, if you fail to follow God in one area, it's like you haven't done any of it. It's like you haven't done any of it. You've fallen drastically short. See, in our eyes, we're always good in comparison to someone else. But God looks at it this way. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You have either kept the law and God's commandments, or you have not done it. You have fallen short. And the truth is, all of us have failed. All of us haven't done it. Not only have we not done it, we can't do it. We don't have the moral ability in ourselves to choose what God wants every time. We are broken sinners. But James says this, speak and act. Do it. Speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom. Remember, this law is good. It's the way God designed things to do, to go in life. So do it. And yet, we've fallen short. Even when we see that the law and God's commands and his word are good, there's something in this that prohibits us from following God 
I can't get it right. I can't just do it. But then James says this, For judgment is without mercy to the one who has not shown mercy, but mercy triumphs over judgment. For sinners who break God's law, for sinners who fall short of doing what God's commands, for sinners who cannot follow God's word perfectly all of the time, God's mercy triumphs over the judgment we deserve because of what Christ has done for us. See, every day you get up and you get out of bed and you say, I'm going to follow God today. And then when you get back in bed that night, you have a list of ways that you did not follow God. You will fail. But God's mercy and grace is there every day. Every slip, every sin, every rebellion. Mercy triumphs over judgment, not because God has just sweeped our sins under a rug, but because he has poured out his wrath on Jesus Christ in your place. And therefore, God's judgment is not reserved for you because it has been poured out on Jesus. And in your need for mercy, in your need for mercy, and in the place that you find mercy, that's the very place that you find mercy to extend to others. As you see that God loves you, that's the very place that you find power to love others. It's in the forgiveness that you receive that the power to follow God comes from. It's in the payment of debt that you find the power to do day after day. It's in Christ's atonement for us that we find the freedom to act according to God's will. You can't do it. But Christ has done it for you. And that gives you a freedom to get up every day and say, Lord, help me to follow you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word, and we ask that you would use it to change us. We so desperately want to follow you, and yet we fall so drastically short, Lord. Our temptation is just to say, oh, that doesn't matter, or to minimize our sin in some other way. But you say that mercy triumphs over judgment. So we pray that we would be alert and aware of our forgiveness, Christ, and that as we bite into your mercy, it might overflow out of our hearts and it might pour out into others. It would affect the way that we treat the vulnerable. It would affect the way that we turn away from sin and worldliness. And it might empower us to love you more. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Please stand with me.